Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm you, Will Dawkins, cool boy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. That leaves 1%, doesn't it? Yes, 1% mystery. 1%. Where in the world are, are you, Brian? I am in Stockholm at the Swedish Arbitration Days. Where are you, Joel? I'm in the south of Sweden this fall season again. I'm still pretending to be an academic in, in the remote cabin. Yeah, Joel's back in the cabin. As always, <laughs> it's a good place to be. Before we get started with this first episode of the third season of the Arbitration Station, we have to thank the sponsor for the third season, IA Reporter. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies, which I promised a government employee who listens to the podcast to emphasize that also government people use the <laughs> iReporter. Subscribe to iReporter or visit iReporter.com. Awesome. We had an inflow of interest from the Twitter sphere and from the teaser trailer about research, legal researchers, and we are still uh, working out who it's going to be. And so that will be announced probably coming up and maybe one of maybe the next episode. Yes, most most likely. I think we got almost 50 applications. At least we can say dozens confidently because I haven't counted them all. That was an, an, an impressive inflow. I guess there's a, a lot of uh, ambitious young, young arbitration people out there looking to own their research skills. And to continue on with our crowdsourcing, we did some crowdfunding and we got some pretty incredible contributions on our Indiegogo account. So go to www.indiegogo.com i-n-d-i-e gogo.com and look up the arbitration station and donate it can be anything and we really want to emphasize this a euro helps um so but we it really, it really people, does we had some people give a little bit more than a euro isn't that right Joel? yeah we were thank you thank you thank you for your generosity there were a bunch of anonymous people contributing uh, larger sums of money and we also want to thank by name Duarte Enriquez, Karina Baltag, and uh, Andreas Hacke, who uh, contributed large sums of money to to help us keep this podcast going. Thank you all very much, and thank you also to the anonymous people. And that's an important feature to remember. You can donate two euros and be anonymous. We want more and smaller. <laughs> 
contributions right. as well. Brian was just telling me he would never contribute at all. So you're fine if you don't, but we would also very much appreciate if you do. I mean, I would definitely contribute to this one. This is one of those exceptions to the rule. <laughs> I know it's hard to take out your wallet, but the process is really easy. www.indiegogo.com. I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. I feel like all I'm right. promoting that. <laughs> Are we done with the household stuff? We can move on to arbitration substance. Well, yeah, uh, we can talk about the conference that I'm currently in the middle of. Um, the Swedish Arbitration Association has a uh, two-day conference called the Swedish Arbitration Days, and we've been told not to give it an acronym because it becomes sad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> with two A's, though. Uh, a Swedish Arbitration no. Days. That's right. Okay. Sorry. Uh, the so sad. Letters it's, and words, not my thing. It's sad this week. Um, and it's been going great. And as we teased, we had some great interviews, one of which will be on this uh, episode. And uh, we'll sprinkle in some of the other ones in later episodes. But we got some really good discussions. And I like this conference format where we kind of rope people into a side room and, and get their thoughts. I was spotted uh, by my voice at the conference that was exciting oh again yeah <laughs> uh yeah so that was great um too bad you missed it joel um yes and sorry for that i called into one of the interviews but otherwise uh, my self-imposed exile has to remain exile for <laughs> yes. a little while longer get your work done so I have to do one more conference plug before we move on to the substance of this week's episode or this bi-week episode, however we're going to call it. Um, there is a conference on the 7th of November uh, here in Stockholm to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the master's program at Stockholm University in commercial arbitration, the ICAL program. Uh, it will also be the kickoff for the FDI moot. So those coming for the FDI moot, uh, be sure to come a day early for the conference. Um, there is a registration fee, but uh, registration is now open and we really uh, want to get as many people involved. We have some really good speakers and I'm co-organizing it along with Paulina Permiakova and Alison Tabell. Um, Paulina's a partner at Delphi and Alison Tabell is a counsel at the SEC and together we hope to put on a really good conference. And I will be there moderating. Yes, Joel is moderating Hot Topics. Yes, I want to, uh, I'm trying to angling myself into becoming a full-time moderator. I have no ambition to be an arbitrator or a mediator, but a moderator I could actually <laughs> see myself working as. <laughs> Alternative dispute resolution careers. New happy fun time topic. Uh, what about this week's episode? This week's episode is great. It starts, I think, yes, we'll start with the exhaustion of local remedies. A topic that is close to my heart uh, and to many international lawyers, but is annoying to many arbitration lawyers. So I thought we would uh, try to wrap our heads around that uh, topic of international law, which has a lot of implications in international investment law primarily. Definitely. That's a, it's a great topic. It's one of our, you know, getting back to the roots of what this podcast was about. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, speaking of roots, you are talking to Vejo Heiskanen at the Swedish Arbitration Days, who, maybe it's a Swedish thing, but Finnish people always seem thoughtful and, uh, you know, uh, well-rounded. Maybe even when they're speaking English with a slight Finnish accent, he, he just sounds like he's an authority. I, I agree with you, because we also talked to, uh, you know, some other Finns on the podcast. I won't reveal their names. Uh, and I, I agree. I just, it's, it's a very direct dialect. 
they they talk yeah. with the tongue in the front of their mouth, like right behind their teeth. I guess I don't know what it is. I have, I don't even know what you're talking about. But what? what <laughs> My what friend is a speech about? pathologist. That's why. <laughs> what are you talking to Veo about? Uh, I well, he was speaking at the conference about best uh, best practices in in writing, um, in written advocacy. But then he kind of wanted to talk about best practices in international arbitration as an industry and as a field. And so it was very much him showing himself as a thought leader in the community, kind of dissecting the decades of what the arbitration community has been obsessed with um, and has been trying <laughs> to modernize and move forward as they try to adapt to the changing landscape of the field. And so he kind of encapsulates um, basically your and I generation in arbitration and what we've been focused on and what we should look to in the future. It's a great big picture of you to open the season with, I think. Absolutely. And then, of course, we're sticking with happy fun time, as always. And how do we have a name for this? Office politics? Office politics. How, In is that good enough? Yeah. On and off the field. We'll on and off the field. Yes. Uh, we'll see when we get there. We haven't really figured this out yet. And obviously, we have not yet recorded that segment. So, so you, you'll hear towards the end of the episode. But first, let's move on and do some exhaustion of local remedies. So I gave Brian homework for this segment on the exhaustion of local remedies, and I would imagine it was completely out of context for you, right? Yeah, I got a link and clicked on it and was lost for 35 minutes. Yes, you'll never get your life back, uh, <laughs> or at least not those minutes you spent watching the video. Can you describe in, in generic terms what the video is, and then we'll return to that sooner in the segment or later in the segment? Uh, what, a, what a cliffhanger. Yeah, sure. So the video, I clicked on the video, and it says uh, Willie Ray's promotional video. And it's basically a highlight reel of this lawyer, this um, personal injury lawyer, and his career and how he gives back to the community, but it's shot in like a 90s gritty style uh, film, and it's almost like a Ryan Murphy uh, assassination of Gianni Versace format. <laughs> that, was, that was a narrow reference point, but I think you nailed it. Okay, we'll get back to this pretty soon, and I'll explain why I had you watch this promotional video from a southern U.S. lawyer and his career and... and uh, standing in his local community Can't wait. but first first let's uh back up a little bit and start with this exhaustion of local remedies which is actually the topic of my horrific master thesis which is good for all students out there to let it be an inspiring reminder that you don't have to write a good final essay in law school you could also write a so-so text and still go on to write a so-so phd monograph <laughs> no that's that's joel's swedish hum humbleness humility is the word but because of this and um the what that three four five months i spent digging into this when i didn't know anything about investment law i like exhaustion of local remedies as a topic and uh, it is a rule really uh, in customary international law that a claimant must use all reasonably available avenues of domestic remedies prior to seeking recourse in international law. So it's customary international law, which means that it applies uh, typically as a default in international law, 
we, it applies in diplomatic protection, which basically is uh, the historic uh, precedent to uh, investment arbitration. It applies in human rights. It's it's incorporated in many treaties, including the European Convention on Human Rights, and so on and so forth. Basically, for any international lawyer, this is a given. You cannot go to any international dispute resolution before you first tried for as long as you can in the domestic state where you have your case. Right. So th this is a given, but not so much in arbitration, obviously. Uh, but why is that? And that is what I'll try to get through with the assistance of, of um, O'Brien, who hasn't researched this and just watched a video of a U.S. attorney. <laughs> we, we should say also initially that this is one of the major criticisms leveled against ISDS from outside of our world of arbitration nerds. There are several proposals and in some cases also new treaty provisions to the effect that such a requirement, you have to go to domestic court before you can go to arbitration. Uh, it's inserted. And obviously this provokes arbitration lawyers, and I'm guessing also Brian, who yeah. tend to view arbitration as uh, sort of an alternative to courts, precisely because you want to avoid courts rather than being the final instance after you've gone through a domestic legal system. But we'll go back to, to that as well and why arbitration lawyers can't tolerate this. So I said initially that the rule that you have to exhaust local remedies is customary international law, but there are a few exceptions to that rule. And uh, the two major ones are waiver and futility. So if we first just briefly address waiver, there's an ICJ classic, uh, the LC case between Italy and the United States that I think it was rendered about the time we were born. I can't recall the exact year, but towards the end of the 1980s. One of the few investment disputes actually to ever reach the ICJ, but of course in a state-state setting. Right. And there the court said that the rule that you have to exhaust local remedies is not waived by the mere presence of a treaty providing for international dispute resolution. Uh, but there's a subsequent approach that has developed, which is that you can waive the rule implicitly if you have clear language to that effect, meaning that even if in general international law, uh, it is uh, a rule that you have to follow, arbitration clauses typically have been understood to waive the exhaustion of local remedies rule. And when we're speaking of waivers, we have to mention the exit convention. Uh, which in Article 26 provides that a contracting state may require the exhaustion of local administrative or judicial remedies as a condition of its consent to arbitration under this convention. So Article 26 of the Exit Convention sort of reverses the customary international law rule and says that the exhaustion of local remedies applies only if the contracting state explicitly requires it. So the default in exit arbitration is waiver. And I think that to date, Guatemala is the only state that has made such a waiver for all exit cases. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, Israel did it as well, but revoked it. And there have been some discussions in, uh, in, in arbitrations on how, when and where such a waiver must be made if you don't do it as a state uh, in connection with signing the convention. Uh, so some states have uh, claimed, you know, when a dispute arises, for example, try to uh, say that we require exhaustion local remedies, but that has not flown at all so far. 
I have a question on the hierarchy of these. When you do have to exhaust the local remedies, is it clear, and maybe this is like a very fundamental question, but is it clear when it goes up to the Supreme Court of Guatemala and then you have to go to our international arbitration, what is the legal effect between the, if you get an award in your favor, that would essentially reverse the Supreme Court of Guatemala? Well, I mean, in treaty arbitration, typically you can't really reverse the decision that no, you'd have contradictory decisions. I mean, yeah, what what you can do though, well, I mean, what you ask for as an investor in that case is compensation for the wrongdoing that you claim the state committed uh, mm. in the form of of the decision. So you get compensation. The, the tribunal does not order the Supreme Court to like reverse its decisions. No, 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 typically not. But then in technically, so technically the international, but. Do you see, would the state pay? I, well, yeah, I guess they sign on to the convention, so they're bound by it. Yeah, exactly. So that, I mean, from an international law perspective, and people might disagree with this, including EU lawyers in, in the ACMEA context, but uh, you can never sort of get out of a breach of international law with reference to your domestic law. You can never say, but this is legal under our law. Right. If a tribunal finds that you you committed a, a wrong in under an international law, that's that's the end of it, and you can't justify that by reference to your domestic law. Right. But that, it's a good question, and and it touches upon uh, notions of denial of justice, which we'll get back to pretty soon. I just want to mention that outside of ICSID, when there is no waiver, we don't really know the the situation although it seems to be generally accepted that an arbitration clause is enough to waive the requirement and as far as i know a jurisdictional objection based on a general customary rule that you have to exhaust local remedies um has never been successful no. nor i think has it ever been even been raised actually not that i can think of now so it seems to be just common understanding that if the trade the state has uh, entered into treaty with an arbitration clause that is enough to waive the the rule then we have the second exception to the rule which is futility i.e there's no point in exhausting local remedies then uh, in theory you don't have to do it either and here we enter the Leuven case which is what I want to spend most of my time on just because it's so damn funny okay <laughs> so this is Leuven uh, L-O-E-W-E-N, or Lowen, or Loven, or however you want to pronounce it, against the United States. And I should say, just to, to plug the excellent I reporter once again, they have a great series running a theme called Looking Back, where they don't uncover new arbitrations, but rather go back to classics and write extensive analysis of them. And they did one on Loven versus United States, and it's outside of the paywall. So even if you don't have a subscription, you can read up on it there. And I'm guessing that's because I, a reporter, also feels that this is uh, an interesting case worth right. reading up on. And I have myself uh, constructed a few exam questions based on this case, so I know it pretty well. Do you know it, of it at all, Brian? Just so I know where to put start the at the very beginning. <laughs> okay. In the beginning, there was light. <laughs> Adam and Eve. You, 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 you should know this as an American because it's often said that the U.S. has never lost an investment arbitration, but that this is the case that they really, really should have lost. Fake news! Fake news! <laughs> never lost. Never lost. U.S. good. Investors bad. You say you <laughs> It was actually held up a lot in Europe during the, the TTIP debates to justify why we 
and by we, I mean European investors, need access to arbitration against the U.S., why we don't want to go to U.S. domestic courts. A lot of arbitration people especially pointed to this case, uh, and I don't know to what extent this case uh, actually represents the, the run-of-the-mill case in the U.S., but so let me start at the beginning so that uh, you can also follow, Brian. Thanks. Leuven, Leuven was a Canadian company providing funeral services, which just to begin with is the most harmless of international investors. It's a Canadian funeral home. Yeah, Joel, <laughs> this is already a hilarious judgment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it starts off so very good. nicely. And the, uh, the company established itself in the US, including in the great state of Mississippi. And they made a deal with a local competitor, uh, but that deal went sour, and the local competitor sued Lowen in state court, alleging breach of contract and asking for $4 million, I think, in damages. And that case, the contractual dispute, went to the first instance court in Mississippi, I can't remember where, in a jury trial. And the jury then awarded the local competitor $100 million for the contract breach and an additional $400 million in punitive damages. Wow. Please tell me so there was a contingency fee. <laughs> so, yeah, they got a half a billion dollar based on a dispute of $4 million. And speaking of contingency fees, this is where the video comes in. <laughs> I see. Ooh, what a reach. All right. <laughs> okay, well, that. Let's get back to that again. It's not actually such a big uh, reach as you would think because Leuven, Leuven, shit, I can't do this. Leuven, Leuven is how I would pronounce it in Swedish, and I guess it's either German or Swedish originally. So let's say Leuven. Okay. Leuven, maybe. Okay, that, then we know it's been already established that we can't pronounce Dutch names. <laughs> Leuven, of course, appealed this uh, half a billion uh, judgment. And here another of our favorite topics comes in, uh, stay of enforcement, because in order for Leuven to stay the enforcement of the $500 million judgment under Mississippi law, the appellant, i.e. Leuven, had to post 125% of the award, which would amount <laughs> to $625 million. <laughs> So Leuven being, you know, a, a Canadian funeral home did not have this kind of money. What? And after a lot of investigation, they instead settled for, I think, $175 million. And it didn't go well afterwards either, I think, for the firm. Because they didn't even have probably $175 million to pay for settlement. And after this settlement, both Leuven the company and its owner, Leuven the person, sued the U.S. under NAFTA, arguing several NAFTA breaches, but denial of justice under the international minimum standard provision of NAFTA is the most relevant for us. Um, and here the exhaustion of local remedies now come back, because it was not in dispute that Leuven had only gone through one instance of the U.S. justice system, the court of first instance. They settled before the case could be heard on appeal, uh, supposedly then because they could not pay the bond. And in theory, there is also the U.S. Supreme Court above that, and they could have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, asked for a stay, and gotten some sort of emergency, I don't know, application uh, heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. So how does this matter in, in the arbitration, the, this fact pattern? So the tribunal made a distinction that is common in investment arbitration jurisprudence, which is between exhaustion as a procedural rule, which would bar a claimant from bringing the claims, 
and exhaustion as part of the substance uh, affecting whether or not the claim can be successful on its merits. Uh, and the procedural nature of exhaustion is generally not a problem in arbitration, as I mentioned, because it's not held to bar a tribunal from exercising jurisdiction. But there is a thornier side to, to, the, to the rule that you have to exhaust local remedies, and that is the way that it sometimes seeps into the merits of the claims. And this can be either in terms of admissibility, i.e. the claim is not ripe yet, or it could simply be that the claim does not succeed because the claimant did not properly pursue remedies the way it should have. And the Loving case is an example of the latter. And for the record, there are many more such cases. For example, for the diligent students out there, Generation Ukraine versus Ukraine and Helnan versus Egypt, Egypt to mention too. And Helnan is a good illustration as well because that was a case that was partially annulled when the ad hoc committee and I might be reaching here, but I think Campbell McLaughlin that we talked to in Sydney was on the Helnan Annulment Committee. Mm -hmm. um, they found that the tribunal had tried to reintroduce the procedural local remedies rule by making it part of the merits claims, i.e. they did not say, you know, we don't have jurisdiction because you did not exhaust local remedies, but uh, we'll hear your claim, uh, but it will not succeed because you should have. So you don't have a claim if you don't go through the system, basically. Right. So back to Leuven, and the interesting thing here, and now the video with the lawyer comes in. Uh, the interesting thing here is that the tribunal seemed very clear on the nature of the Mississippi trial, and this part reads like a John Grisham novel in a southern courthouse, because Leuven was characterized as a rich white foreigner taking over Mississippi, destroying local African-American businesses, <gasps> and this was argued by a very flamboyant counsel on behalf of the local competitor. Uh, and you watched the video, and I would recommend our listeners to watch the video. I did not know about this before I cheated and read the IE reporter analysis of the Loving case. And they link it. Uh, it's a Vimeo video. I think we'll put it up on the webpage in which the local counsel um, basically presents himself and his successful career. Wait, this is the counsel from the Loven case, the, the video you sent me? Yes. So this guy who you called a personal injury lawyer. Fascinating. Love it. He, he's not just the counsel. He's basically uh, partly, you know, the, the, the grounds for Canada's denial of justice claim. Love it. Uh, because the... Yeah, exactly. This is good trivia. It's it's too bad we don't have like a late night TV show rather than a podcast because then we could have just edited a minute or two into the to the segment because it's kind of hard to to uh, properly recount the character of this person yeah. and all of his cars and his happy family and all the scholarships <laughs> that he created with the success. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so it, it's funny, but it's also kind of sad. And what the tribunal said is that the uh, they did not mince the words really. They called the trial racist, flawed, a miscarriage of justice, etc., etc. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, here is that the Canadian funeral operator was was white, and I think maybe even the majority, but a pretty big part of the the jury was not uh, consisted of African Americans and the lawyer representing the local competitor was also African-American. So the whole racism... Was against thing the white person. You, 
Exactly. You you have a preconceived notion of what it would be based basically off of John Grisham novels when you have a southern trial that is racist. But here it was sort of uh, turned tables in the sense that the white Canadian was bombasted and really uh, was not treated very yeah, it's well. That's like To Kill a Mockingbird backwards. Uh, but that's... <laughs> exactly. The That's tribunal must have been non-Americans because there's no Americans that would dare say that there's racism against a white person. Well, well, that's actually also an interesting aspect of this that is not talked about that much because it happened after after the case. And now I'm skipping ahead just because you mentioned it, and I'll, I'll tell you how the case ended in in the in the arbitration. We already know because the U.S. does not lose arbitrations, but uh, what happened afterwards, which is very interesting, is that the arbitrator appointed by the U.S., who was an American, stated publicly that he had met with Justice Department officials before he was nominated when they were vetting him. And they told him, basically, we can't lose this case because then we would lose NAFTA. This was just a few years after the NAFTA had entered into force and it was not popular and Bill Clinton was under a lot of pressure. And the arbitrator then recalled saying, well, if you want to pressure me, that's it basically you know wow. saying okay uh, i i will not let you lose this case because then we will lose nafta so there were american arbitrators on the tribunal and they were according to this at least listening to the us government uh, in in trying to get this case thrown out because that is ultimately what happened so although the tribunal said that this was a flawed trial and the judge had done very little to contain this uh, strange flamboyant lawyer and allowed the crazy trial to go on. Um, and there were many other, like the, the way the damages were awarded were not compatible with local law. There was not enough evidence. There were a, a bunch of things you, as an international lawyer, would feel uh, is not compatible with international standards of, of uh, the administration of justice. Uh, so probably this violated the NAFTA standard of minimum standard of treatment. Uh, however, then, and now we finally get to the end of the road here and everything makes sense. Leuven had not pursued it further in the okay. U.S. system, basically. So under international law, the tribunal said the claimant must exhaust local remedies before a claim of denial of justice in this case can be successful. So settling the claim was not a good idea, basically. So the tribunal said that Leuven had other options available. And this, I think, I'm, I'm curious to hear your view on this, but this makes sense partially. It gets a lot of flack, this decision, for obvious reasons. Uh, and many people seem to think that the U.S. should have lost this. But the point with having this rule as part of denial of justice or the substance of a claim is that you have to give the state a chance to rectify wrongdoings at a lower level. So right. when you're arguing if you, when you're arguing denial of justice and claiming that the state did something wrong, you cannot base that claim off of the lowest court in the system. You have to give the state a chance to uh, rectify what that lowest court did. That makes, yeah, that and, makes sense to me. I yeah, mean, obviously, it really it's, does. it's easier said than done. It's like years and lots of money, but yeah, yeah. I mean, in in isolation, in a vacuum, that makes perfect sense. But yeah. it's tricky when you have when you have like punitive damages that are a hundred times the original <laughs> right, award, and like, you have to post uh, bond to, to move on. And I can't remember, but it's also it was discussed like how likely is it that we'll get the U.S. Supreme Court to take this up? And it was you know probably a zero point zero point zero something chance that the U.S. Supreme Court would take this up. But so isn't it makes that? Sense, but I mean, like, but then you're at the futility argument, right? So he, as long as he yeah. applied and did, they didn't grant 
cert, then he did it. But he still had to go yeah. to the appeals court within Mississippi and then go up to the federal courts. Like it, it, it wasn't just like a district court, Supreme Court jump. Yeah, exactly. And I think also he could have or they could have filed for bankruptcy under U.S. law, which would shield them from enforcement. That obviously has other problems for right. for, the, for the company. But that was another avenue. You, you could do that and then get the judgment overturned and then somehow uh, get back into business again. So there were other avenues available. And that's uh, the the main point for the tribunal when they rejected the case. And then afterwards, after the merit hearings, uh, something else actually happened. And it turned out that the company had reincorporated in the U.S., thereby losing its Canadian uh, uh, investor status. So that's ultimately, uh, in the end of the award, uh, when this had all come to light, that's why they rejected the case. So the previous like two-thirds of the award, when they're talking about extortion and local remedies, turned out not to be decisive. It was the fact that uh, it was not Canadian. It was not a Canadian investor, ultimately. But they kept this all in the award anyway, so it's it's for, for the public to enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, well done. I think we should have book club segments and Joel recounting old case segments. Yeah, but this is hard, though, to start with this, because I don't think there's another investment treaty case. There there are a few with good stories in them, but this is just so outrageous, and it fits so well into, like, the pop culture and what you think, especially when you watch the video of the lawyer representing Leuven's counterpart. <laughs> just too too colorful to look away, basically. It's like a traffic accident. Oh, my God. I, I want Wiener Hotel's lawyers to start making highlight reels. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was like Constantine Paratidis. Not sure, but that'd be hilarious. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it has to be more classy, though. You can't get an international arbitration lawyer to do that kind of promo video with like 15 minutes of self-posting. It, it, <laughs> the culture does not allow for it, I think. I mean, you have you know about like Larry H. Parker in the U.S. I don't know if you when you were living in Georgetown, if you saw those commercials for lawyers. I'm sure yes, he had those as well. We won 98% of our cases. We'll fight for you. Yeah, I actually saw in the in the video uh, made by this lawyer. Maybe we should mention his name to make it easier for people to find it. It's Willie, Willie Gary. Willie Gary. Name. Yeah, he made that exact point that uh, I win so many of my cases and I get the biggest jury awards in Southern history or something <laughs> right. like that. And they, they threw different like headlines on the table, including $500 million awarded. And I was thinking, maybe this is not, uh, of course, you got a lot of money for your client, but maybe this is not the best case to advertise. If someone from Siberia just like w walks out of their cottage and was like, what, what is America like? I would just show this video. You're like, money, 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 sports hero, money, charity, give back, buy everyone Burger King. Land of the free. Or the brave. <laughs> no, I've lived away from too long. Yeah, it doesn't make you wish that you were back, I guess. But but let me just to to wrap this up finally and be a little bit more serious. Uh, we could talk, or we should talk about the reintroduction of the local remedies rule in arbitration or in investment treaties, really. So now we're not talking about the context that came up in, in Leuven, i.e. the substantive part, but rather the procedural part a bar to arbitration. So there's there would be no jurisdiction unless you have first reasonably uh, exhausted reasonably available domestic remedies. And this is not just a, something I made up, but 
India, for example, has this in its model BIT now, which the state is using as a basis for negotiating with other states. And Argentina, Romania, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, Uruguay, um, a bunch of different organizations have been talking about getting this rule into investment treaties. Right. What do you think about that arbitration lawyer, Brian Kodik? I, as you said before, it, it provokes me and it's scary and it's uh, it's going to be really, really difficult for these investors. I mean, it's basically just delaying the case that is inevitably going to come six years, you know, on average. I, I yeah, even in even in jurisdictions where justice or the rule of law is is good, it takes a few years. Yeah, I mean, because exhaustion of local remedies was before it came out of diplomatic protection, right? So yeah. you have this, like, there was no other way for you to get a solution to your problem because you had to go through the court of where it was because there was nothing else. And then at the very end, when you had nothing else, that's when diplomatic protection would kick in. And so that's how exhaustion of local remedies was kind of built and ingrained into the culture. But now you have a very biased, well-functioning system that can allow you to have remedies on the international level immediately without going through the local courts. I mean, you're, there's no way that some like legislation that has passed that is negatively, adversely affecting an investor that has been passed like discriminatory or arbitrarily or whatever, that that investor is going to like infect legislative change or a constitutional decision from the Supreme Court saying that that legislation is wrong as a as the perfect remedy for what they need. And if you're talking about, you know, the, the dollar value of your judgment today versus the dollar yeah. value of your judgment in 15 years, I mean, it's going to be a huge discrepancy. But I find this to be just very, very interesting. And if I were to, like, look in the tea leaves and see what's going to happen in the reform works. I think this might be a bone of contention because my impression from talking to people who are not you, but on the other side of this, is that no matter how we reform investment arbitration, exhaustion of local remedies is the very least we can do. That seems to be something that all like political scientists and policy people and state government officials and others seem to agree that th that we can do that. We can sort of remove arbitration from being a separate one-stop shop and instead let it be the final instance in the most egregious cases where you failed in court first. Whereas arbitration people, of course, say the exact opposite. So I think this might be uh, a battle that we are yet to see uh, and it might even come up in a non-citral or another context. Yeah. No, I, I obviously the, the see the devil's advocate side of the the situation but if you're thinking of yourself as, as in the investor's shoes i mean it's it's near impossible to think that you're going to come with, i mean unless you have a really great system in in the court system but um because most cases are heard against states where the investor has no faith whatsoever in the domestic court system and even if right. they do it will just take so much time like like Leuven. If you're a relatively small or maybe even a medium-sized company, you don't have the resources to have like a better company dispute pending courts for five, seven, ten years if you're unlucky. Right. So let me just wrap this up by saying by way of advice, you should still pursue local remedies 
if you're an investor or rather representing an investor simple at least for uh, for as much as you can because if you don't you risk having your conduct evaluated and taken into account by the tribunal in a way that may hurt your case so mm. i mean it's easier said than done sometimes so i go ahead and just pursue for as much as you possibly can just to make your case stronger absolutely fire on all cylinders that's good legal advice joel yes thank you it's gonna cost you <laughs> and i think you've exhausted this topic hey i've been waiting hey. i've been waiting for that i've been waiting for that <laughs> your only note for this segment. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How did you research for this segment? Found exhaustion puns. Yeah, very good. <laughs> I actually have one for the happy fun time. But before we get to that, I think we should move on and uh, let you talk to Veyo Heiskanen. You know, my dyslexia was trying to switch it back and forth. Yeah. All right, so we are sitting here with Veo Heiskanen. At the at the beginning of the SAA days, um, you were just coming from an SEC board meeting, and now you're here at the Swedish arbitration days. And the topic of the conference is advocacy, but we have decided to kind of take it in a bit of a new direction um, and talk about best practices in arbitration. Welcome to the podcast. We're very happy to have you. Thank you, Brian. Good morning. And good morning. Good morning. Um, so we will, just to let you know, this is the beginning of season three of our podcast. So we are very happy to have you in one of our first episodes. So Congratulations. You have survived longer than many other <laughs> uh, talk shows. We're trying to figure out when is a legitimate point. Like, at what point do you become legitimate? Okay. We'll, we'll keep working on that. <laughs> All right. Okay. So why don't you um, kind of introduce this topic for us? Now... Uh, we thought it might be useful to first look at this um, uh, this topic in a, in a broader context, um, given the uh, given the uh, a sort of a, a great experience that I have gathered over the last 30, 30 years, uh, sadly, a long time in international arbitration. Uh, we are, in a sense, I would say, entering a, a new era in in international arbitration, including both commercial and investment. We, we could say uh, we have had three large or grand eras in international commercial arbitration. In 19, 1980s, even before um, early 1990s, there was a big debate about the applicable law. Everybody was talking about a national arbitration, uh, uh, arbitration that yeah. is detached from the, uh, from the local system. And there was this balancing act between to what extent we actually need the local, system, local legal system to enforce, in the end, at least to enforce arbitral awards. That was one debate. I think we are pretty clear on how to determine applicable law in arbitration nowadays, but that debate is still there in the background. Uh, the second big debate was maybe from the late 1990s until, let's say, 2015. Um, we were all focusing on how to administer evidence, how to collect evidence in arbitration, uh, witnesses, how do we use them, do we have witness statements, uh, how to use expert evidence, which has now become a, a standard feature in international exactly. arbitration. It's a, it's, there's a whole industry uh, around it. We were talking about document production. And the issue that came up as the big issue was how, to com how do we combine efficient collection and administration of evidence with, um, with efficiency. Right. So that was the grand dilemma. If there was a grand dilemma in the first debate about how to maintain or create an independent regime of international arbitration, 
while maintaining the link to the local system. We had a debate about how to reconcile efficiency and uh, effective administration of evidence. Now, over the last two, three years, as we all know, we have, uh, we have started debating a different issue. We are now all policymakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we are trying to manage the, uh, the interface between third-party interests and international arbitration. And this uh, applies not only to investment arbitration, but also increasingly in, uh, in commercial arbitration. So issues such as participation of third parties, uh, non-disputing parties, amici submissions, uh, opening of hearings to the public, uh, publication of awards and other decisions, inc- including in commercial arbitration, and uh, third-party funding. This is what we are debating now. Right. And the, it seems to me that the grand dilemma that we are, we are facing now is how do we retain the, the soul of arbitration in this, um, in this debate? The balancing act is between making arbitration perhaps more socially and uh, otherwise more acceptable as a form of dispute resolution, but we have to at the same time make sure that it doesn't become litigation. So you see it as fitting into this legitimacy discussion that has been circulating? That is essentially the the, the background. Uh, It's been termed in terms of legitimacy, legitimacy perhaps from the point of view of those who are advocating the third-party intervention or participation in arbitration. But if, and I'm now speaking uh, from the perspective of an arbitration practitioner, uh, the two um, key features which form the soul of international arbitration are party autonomy and privacy. Mm -hmm. They are effectively two sides of one and the same coin. Um, Party autonomy means the parties have the the right to appoint, or at least the possibility to to appoint arbitrators, create their own tribunal. They can regulate the procedure um, as they see fit for the purpose of that particular dispute, customized the famous ad hocracy nature of arbitration. And on the other hand side of the coin we have privacy, which means that third parties Parties are not able to attend hearings. They don't. Uh, they don't get copies of the decisions or awards unless it's necessary for the purposes of, of enforcing an award. So privacy and um, party autonomy are the the two sides of the soul of international arbitration. The the question for us as international arbitration practitioners is: Do we want to enter into a Faustian bargain, whereby trading we trade the these two uh, aspects of the core of international arbitration for greater market. Right, right. I mean, at first blush, I would say that, um, that I mean, I think it's inevitable. I think that that's where the, the market is, our industry is headed, that things are opening up. I mean, you have hearings publicized now on YouTube, and but the funny thing is, is that no one cares, right? There's such this push to, okay, well, we want to make it open, and you have all these news articles saying that arbitration is just lawyers shaking hands and making deals, and no one's talking about it. But then the second people actually have access to it, no one really cares. So is this debate just... A circular argument? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a circular argument. It's, it's perhaps a uh, it calls for a debate about also for what kinds of disputes arbitration is best fit for, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and where do we want to actually have 
have have courts to deal with the disputes or, or bodies that are similar or akin to courts. Um, it's not a new situation. There have been other types of dealing with international disputes like claims commissions which which do away with the party autonomy. Right. It's not arbitration. Um, you don't have party, uh, party autonomy in, in court proceedings. Um, so when we, the, the, the point that I'm making is that when we start trading away the, these core aspects of, or limiting these core aspects of, um, of arbitration, um, we, are, we, are, we are in a, in a situation where we need to see how far we go and how when we can still call it arbitration. And whether right. we are trading away something that is actually important for the for the users, right? Um, users of the system, and uh, we may have to cut our losses if we uh, if arbitration is not seen as a legitimate way of dealing with certain regulatory disputes. Mm-hmm. It may be better to have other types of bodies to deal with those disputes uh, than than arbitration. Do you think that <coughs> if they start? writing these types of reforms into the rules, for example, the SEC rules, that they say, okay, well, this dispute will be publicized or the final award will be published, and then the parties agree to those rules, then you kind of are able to get both sides preserved, right? Uh, that is the um, uh, that is what I think many rule makers are looking at at the moment. ICSID is revising its, rule, its rules. Many other institutions are right. revising their rules, particularly to deal with, with this kind of these kinds of third-party uh, interests, to what extent they should be taken into account in order to protect, precisely as you said, the legitimacy of, uh, of arbitration as it, as it has been perceived uh, by, uh, by third parties, including, including regulators. Um, so there's, a, there's in, a, in a sense, a defensive battle going on in, in order to Accommodate the way we are we are conducting international arbitrations to the uh, to these to these changing these changing circumstances. The only thing I wanted to make is that we should not we should keep the eye on the ball yeah. and not forget about what arbitration was designed for and what is what it's uh, should I say the soul is. Yeah. Do you? I mean, as a practicing lawyer, do you when you're counseling clients? Do you see any push for them to want to make anything public or to include a third party in order to put pressure on the counterparty? Or do you see a need from the client side to modernize the arbitration process to allow for these types of new features? Uh, once the dispute has arisen, very few, few clients, whether it's private companies or, or governments, are actually interested or too keen to have... Yeah. Uh, have um, uh, overly publicized proceedings. Some accommodate them as a matter of policy or pursue them as a matter of policy because that's the governmental policy, but the, uh, the usual instinct is to, is to try to arbitrate them in, a, in peace and quiet exactly. uh, uh, rather than in the, uh, in the public eye. So it sounds like the lawyers, we lawyers are the only ones that care about this legitimacy concern and then we're kind of sacrificing our clients' interests in order to preserve the legitimacy that only we necessarily care about. Uh, I'm not sure. That, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I agree that we are sacrificing, but I would say that we are in. There is this dilemma of uh, of parties, at least in, in commercial parties, having a great interest still in in maintaining party autonomy to the maximum extent and privacy to the to the maximum extent, whereas uh, 
often and sometimes legitimately there is a there is pressure to open up certain aspects of arbitration. Right. It's very important that we maintain this this flexibility and ability to to do the right thing mm -hmm. uh, from uh, from both perspectives. Um, and it may well be that then certain types of disputes we have to find another way of dealing with them. Right. Uh, if 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 privacy and party autonomy are seen as are seen from a policy perspective as, as something that cannot be cannot be accommodated for for instance because of the great public interest in the outcome of the case. Do you see this issue becoming much more complex in the investment arbitration context? It has already become yeah. uh, it has already <laughs> become more uh, uh, more more complex, um, and uh, I think that's precisely where the debate is going to be uh, in the first place in the uh, in the coming years. Right. Um, as to what extent um, arbitration should be made more court litigation-like mm -hmm. um, for these reasons. Um, but at the same time, it's also something that is affecting uh, commercial arbitration to a lesser extent, but it's, it's right. there. And I'm now speaking more from the perspective of a, of a commercial arbitration practitioner because that's the, uh, the big, big part of our, our daily practice and, and, the, and the bulk of the market. Right. I mean, you, you, you made the distinction or the, the point that arbitration and litigation, the line is, is blurring a little bit because of this. It's almost, I think, the line is blurring as well between arbitration and politics that we're kind of trying to follow or influence some type of political development that would benefit the preservation of our industry. Or, I, I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why it benefits us and our clients to kind of have an eye on the political side of things. Um, I don't know if you see that as well. Uh, yes, there's often a thin line between policy making and, and politics. Um, policy making, uh, I suppose, conceptually means that you are not trying to destroy what you are trying to reform. You want to keep it, but make it better. Mm -hmm. As politics is often about more radical things, about getting rid of a certain way of doing things entirely and replacing with them uh, with, uh, with something else. Um, that's how I would, I would draw the line between <laughs> between uh, policy making and, and, and politics. Politics is always behind there how strongly it influences um, the reform of um, arbitration proceedings. I'm not sure, uh, at least if you try to deal with this rationally, you should look at it from the perspective of policy making. Mm. Because if the issue is really whether certain types of disputes should be settled before a court or, uh, or, or arbitration, that is a policy issue fundamentally. Right. Right. So what, I mean, as a practicing lawyer, do we have any, can we do anything to affect change or preserve our, you know, the core, as you say, or is this more on the institution side and, and within? Uh, yes, I think both the institutions and, and practitioners have their, their role to play in this. And as practitioners, of course, we are busy with what we are doing on a daily basis. So <laughs> there is uh, often not time for this kind of luxury as having a debate <laughs> about these issues. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but I guess as practitioners, we can keep discussing this in, in conferences. We can, uh, we can keep uh, publishing about it. Um, but the institutions are, in a, in, in a sense, the, the ones who will be taking the lead because right. they, will be, they will be the ones who are revising the rules. Right. That's, it's difficult because, I mean, as a, you know, you sit in these conferences and you, you know, do the conference tour and a lot of things are said, but a lot of people talk around the point and I feel like it's, it's hard to kind of take action or implement after you leave the conference. You kind of just like sit and debate and 
and drink a whiskey, but then you don't really <laughs> bring it back to your office and really try to affect change. That's the thing. We are a slow-moving ship, yeah, uh, and that's that's why I wanted to talk about and mention these three three eras. This one has been a, a sort of a natural shift uh, in the debate, uh, and there is no bright lines. We are still debating the efficiency of international arbitration, document production. That is, even if it becomes perhaps a less fashionable issue or right. uh, a less hot issue, it's still something that is. Um, affecting the way we are doing but you, but you are right it's a, it's a very slow moving ship <laughs> do you think that so you think that this is kind of the next frontier for the next decade or do you see something new on the horizon uh, i think this is what we have this to deal is what with we have over the of. next few years it's interesting i mean I i've never split it up into eras so it's it's kind of nice cuz you you see it you see that there's trends within uh, this comes with the age unfortunately <laughs> so All right. Well, thank you for sitting down with us. This has been such a pleasure, and um, enjoy the conference. Thank you very much. Likewise. Ready? Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Office politics and general behavioral advice slash ranting from the arbitration station is on the docket for the first happy fun time yes. of the season. And I, I advertised the pun uh, that I was going to use as a segue, but I don't think it even works. But um, so we were talking about local remedies before, and I wanted to talk about drinking culture and how people approach alcohol policies differently as the first subset of our office politics. And after all, isn't that also some sort of local remedy? Like. <laughs> Okay. My local remedy is vodka. Your local remedy is <laughs> Napa Valley wine. Yeah, too much tannins. Um, the yeah, I'll I'll accept it. I'll accept it, Trebek. Okay. Um, <laughs> drinking. I mean, yeah, we'll start with that, but then I think we're gonna kind of dovetail into um, some more general, uh, more general discussions. But yes, yes, absolutely. But this is the reason I want to talk about this as one of the, the topics is that I, I feel a little bit bad for our uh, romanticizing the cocktail hour so much. That was, after all, basically the whole premise for the podcast. We wanted to recreate a cocktail hour. And it's a little bit problematic for me because I'm Swedish. And if I paint with the broadest possible brush here uh-huh it's a delicate subject in sweden uh, yeah drinking it i mean because swedes like russians and Finns, maybe and japanese and some other cultures have a pretty binary relationship to alcohol which is that you either work incredibly hard and mm-hmm. you don't drink or you drink in an excessive manner that most other cultures find strange strange That's, right. That's basically the way we've been taught. To, and I, I'm guessing you have the same experience coming from a very different culture in, in California to Sweden, that Swedes are either very, very sober or very, very drunk. Yeah, to the point where you're shamed. And this is actually a great thing to talk about. You're shamed if you're drunk at an inappropriate time. But if it's Saturday exactly. night and you're rolling on the floor, that's cool. If it's yeah, Wednesday exactly. night and you've had three beers, what's wrong with you? That's not okay. That creates a sort of a, a stigma and drinking a glass or two suggests that you are not a hard worker. It's kind of frowned upon in a way that I think most French or Californians or Brazilians would find weird, actually. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, because in those cultures, uh, such as you, your home culture, people are trusted to be adult and, and to have a beer or a glass of wine and are not necessarily perceived as 
you know, in, that's not incompatible with doing your job at the same exactly. time. But uh, so that's oh, sorry. What I was thinking, I mean, when I thought about this topic, it was in the context of, you know, behavior while you're drinking with your colleagues. Yes, that's a good topic. And well, for the fourth time, I want to give a shout out to our quantum boy at Freshfields in London because he retweeted someone else's tweet about the, the summer parties mm-hmm. coming up for all the summer associates. And uh, did you see this? Yes. So he retweeted something from, that someone else tweeted uh, and that the original tweet read, I hope all summer students are excited for tomorrow's barbecue event. The partners are going to pressure you into drinking and then judge you for it. <laughs> Hashtag team spirit. <laughs> and that is, uh, as far as I understand, not working for a law firm, that is more or less true as well, that you are, as a junior, you are often being tested. Um, through how you approach these these types of social settings and can you talk to people uh, how do you fare when you're outside of the office and uh, in particular how much and what do you drink well you want it's like the u.s election when you're like you want to have a beer with the guy that's like how we choose our presidents in the u.s um yeah but that's how you also choose your associates that's why you have interviews in person because people want to know when we're spending you know, 2,600 hours a year with you that you're going to be someone that they want to spend time with when they're traveling with you on a plane, insert choking noise here, uh, that they, (laughs) that you can travel together and be kind of comrades. And that's how you bond. Unfortunately, the culture that we have grown up in was a little sip here and there, you get some liquid courage and you start, you know, letting your guard down. Um, That's where the bonding happens between you and your coworkers and you and your superiors. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, if, if that hasn't been abundantly clear already, that is absolutely fine as far as uh, this podcast goes. But th- there might also be issues with, I think, especially if you are at the same time being judged. And it, I don't know yeah. if, that, if that holds true. Absolutely. It's the finest line. You need to be like, you know, fun and always at the party. You don't want to be the square that never goes to the social events at the, at the firm. But you cannot be the person that is, you know doing spins on the dance floor or taking like excessive shots at the bar because people note that and it's such a double standard because they're encouraging it and they're having open bars but yet they're always having like a side glance at you to make sure that you can actually hold yourself because two things one they just need to make sure that you're a responsible adult and how are they going to trust you with drafting something that's millions of dollars if you can't even hold yourself at a at an event. And two, if you're taking clients out, not that you're, you know, every night is a social event, but you know, you have dinner with a client after a case is done, or you're meeting with the client for the first time at the at a site visit, and you go out to their local pub to, you know, enjoy the culture of that country's fruits, uh, you need to be able to hold yourself because there's nothing worse than having to sit across the table from a drunk associate, and you're having to put this person's livelihood into their hands. Oh, yeah. Okay, when you put it in those bleak terms, I absolutely see <laughs> where where this tweet came from, actually. And it's also, me, about, it's a bit, sorry. It's also about putting your making sure that you're not put in a any compromising situation that could start the office gossip wheel, um, which can turn very quickly for no reason. Yeah, this we've been talking about before. But I would just want to mention that it's also something to consider when you don't have an office which in my case uh, yeah. is when you're an academic because it, it, it's a it's a, still a dynamic but a different kind of dynamic. And I think especially for people who study arbitration 
uh, at university or law school because I mean it's not unique to arbitration uh, by any means, but it's a it's a narrow and small topic. So you're not studying with 400 other people typically. You're in a uh, either a very small or a relatively small group of people, and you 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 work closely. You maybe do some moot court competitions, and you become friends both with your peers as a student and with you know the mid junior person who's coaching the moot team or who is like me teaching a lot of hours because it's a junior academic or also with a professor you get personal relationships that you don't really know if they are professional or I mean they are professional but they are also uh, sort of personal and um, this is something that I've encountered when I've been going abroad in different settings in my academic capacity that things that would never happen in Sweden seem to happen all over the place things like being invited home to your professor or going yeah. out for dinner with with people that are the next day, you know, lecturing you or talking to you. That there's this uh, romantic ideal almost that university life should be, you know, an exercise in peer exchange. So you're allowed to have a glass of wine or two, even if the person you're having it with will then grade your papers, which is, I wouldn't say illegal, but culturally impossible in Sweden. We can't even serve alcohol when our master students graduate for for legal reasons. And that is something I lament a little bit, and I wish it were different, but I can also see the point. And I'm very myself. You don't know this because you don't know me like that, but I'm very, very cautious. Unfortunately, wow, when we it just comes, put when a it comes to... wall between our relationship, Joel. <laughs> you don't see the side as much, I think. But when I'm teaching, I mean, I've been teaching primarily in Uppsala, which is a student town at, a, at an arbitration master's, and the students hang out a lot. And I'm pretty young, and I would like to do that as well. But I'm very scared of you know just the the risk of running into students at a pub in Uppsala. Not that it would make me uncomfortable, but I don't know. I prefer to have a hundred miles in between myself and yeah. a situation where anything improper could be inferred from any kind of conversation in that context. So That's, I'd rather stay away, which is not that fun, frankly. It's actually a really interesting point because when I became a senior associate, someone uh, kind of told me not at my firm, at another firm, they're like, okay, when you become a senior associate and you start having to delegate, your personal relationships will become your kryptonite. And you need to make sure uh -huh. that if, especially if you're delegating, you're calling someone in on a weekend, you're making them work late, you're making them do, uh, you know, an awful assignment, that it's going to be harder for you to do it and you'll end up shouldering it yourself if you have a very close relationship with that person. So you really need to take some distance and... Um, and put some distance in between you to keep it as professional as possible. And then you can salt and pepper a little bit of your real self, you know, once a year at the office party, but then bring it, <laughs> you know, reel it back in. Oh, you're so Swedish now. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Christmas parties are the, the vent <laughs> for office politics generally. Well, because you need them to, it's like being a parent, right? You need to, you need them to respect you and almost fear you, but at the same time you need to relate. Um, so it's like striking yeah. that balance. Amen. Did you have other aspects of uh, office interactions or workplace interactions that you wanted to mention? You said something about that before. Yeah. So at our firm, we have, I mean, this is just coming off the top of my head because I'm in my office and my door is closed. Um, we have our own offices. Uh, per lawyer, you kind of have your own office, but some people have an open landscape, some firms. Um, a lot of firms are now changing to an open landscape in order to encourage social interaction and deliberation and discussion on cases and make it into a more of a business stockbroker. Like we're going to be picking up the phone and be like, settle, uh, object yeah, yeah. to that. 
know, check that out What's under, that under the bullpen where things happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you from the back, get over here. Uh, as if that's going to happen. But I, you know, when you're drafting, there, 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 there's a bunch of research, I think, because this, I, I, it might even be the case now that the tide has turned already, and that firms are switching back from open landscape. It was very, very big five or ten years ago, mm-hmm. because that was the the latest. And the research on, on workplace interaction that that open spaces would sort of uh, make that kind of interaction easier and you know in in every possible way improve the the work product at the end and I'm not sure that is the case anymore maybe the research is still the same but it seems to me that a lot of people are annoyed with it and I've even heard of a few people who when they moved offices moved back into their own separate offices again. I'm a big, I mean, and it's actually a, a thing here. If you're a person who always has their door closed, or if you're a person who always has their door open, um, I usually close my door because I like to listen to music, but a lot of people will keep their door open and put headphones on to encourage people to come into their space and to show that they're, you know, welcoming and not completely closed off. Oh, Just, yet another reason no law firm would ever welcome me inside. Because you would office. shut the door, close the blinds, turn off all the lights. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to go for nine weeks to a cabin where nobody can disturb <laughs> me so that I can work. I hope that's fine with all of you. See you next coffee break in November. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's a really I think that's an important one on how you interact under stress. And also when yeah. you're when you're drafting or when you're going through a filing, no one likes the person who has not interacted with the assistance or the support staff for weeks and then come filing, they come out guns blazing and start ordering people around. Um, you can't just have your cake and eat it too. You know what I mean? You've got to invest in the system. Oh yeah, that's good. This is one of the things that we never got to that when Jan talked to us in the final episode of the previous season, what we like and don't dis- like and don't like with each other. And mm-hmm. for me, the, the same thing is the answer to both of those questions with you that you are so likable and approachable and make friends everywhere in every kind of context, uh, almost annoyingly. So I've met so many former paralegals, associates or partners of yours that you seem to have a good relationship with. And I guess you invested in them as well, which is, of course, a nice but very annoying quality that you have. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> but I think it's important. I mean, you're you're in this you're in this fight together. Um, and that's what I think the firm or the office culture should be. And I think it should be the same way in the academic realm that, you know, you're um, you're all engaged in the promotion of academia. And but I just don't feel like it's like that with you guys. And not generally. Arbitration lawyers uh, in the academic world are a little bit different because we are so dependent on the actual world to mm-hmm. a much larger extent than other uh, scholars. Typically, I mean, most lawyers of course uh, study the law so you have to be with one foot at least in the real world but arbitration lawyers i think are increasingly so uh, so we also have to be more open-minded but i mean obviously the reason that many people myself included go into academia is so that you don't have to talk to people that much what about competition between you guys Oh, now we're venturing into a separate subject almost. Do you mean on the marketplace or in no, the just academic No, like world? within your, you know, in the office, basically, because we're still like, let's limit it to office politics. But you're in the um, coffee area of the university or and there's some other teachers around. Is it kind of like a pissing contest on who's researching what and who's taken the, these classes and... I mean, is or this person doesn't teach that well? Like, is there that type of 
gossip happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you were to sample a bunch of academics, they would all say, I think, that it's like any other workplace. You have a lot of politics and, and competition. And I've been overplaying this grumpy old man part of myself in this podcast. But for me, it's it's true that I, I just dislike that so much. I tend to stay away yeah. from it completely. But that's a problem because the, you, you also immediately become left out because mm -hmm. in that type of conversation, which could be an unpleasant pissing context, uh, it, it could also just be the everyday interaction that you have with people. And that's how you form relationships with which at the end of the day will affect the level of your work, both the substance and what kind of opportunities you get. Yeah. So I think you have to, you know, buy into that and just try to weed out the the politics bullshit in order to be a part of a community of people where you're working and that as you say actually of course includes not just the professor with whom you're competing for funds or attention but all the people that you're working with right it's i think it's different in a, the practical context you know working in a firm because uh you get staffed on cases and um I mean, a lot of people are really bad with stress, so they're running around like chickens with their head cut off talking about how stressed they are. But you have to kind of state your availability to get good cases, but also get good cases to get better cases, but also work well with others on that case to make sure that the partner or the senior or your co-senior is going to put you on the next case. So there's, there's real politics like that. And in the first three years, because I was the only international hire at the time, um, I would just get a certain type of case, but you know, as the firm grew and I grew, it became a lot more like positioning yourself at the right position to get the right cases. And that is, I don't even want to comment on that because I think that gets really deep into, you know, your profession and your career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a universal phenomenon. I think, and we could do that on a separate segment, almost like how to how to tie yourself to the right person or how to make a good strategy for for moving up the ranks, Oof. which I have no talent for, but uh, it's, uh, it's a topic in itself and you do have talent for it. So maybe we can have a Brian Kotick masterclass. Let's interview someone who doesn't work in law anymore. <laughs> oh, that yeah. Good idea. Let's do that. Let's agree here and now that we'll do that and see why they don't work with arbitration anymore. Yeah, and then that we'll just be a sit and nod and be like, oh, that's uh, never, never never, happened to me. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Uh, All right, should we round off the first happy fun time? Yes. Um, it got a bit serious at more. the end. <laughs> yeah. But still happy fun time that's all good. the same. Thank you to the IA reporter. Thank you to our... Um, potential our future legal researcher uh thank you to our donors don't forget to go to indiegogo.com and from one euro we'll be happy um thanks for the help everyone yeah exactly and twitter email yada 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 you know you know the drill at this point have a good september and we'll talk to you in two weeks and not in one week as used to be the case <laughs>